Thanks, friends, for listening to Nonprofit Lowdown. If you like Nonprofit Lowdown, you will love my free weekly newsletter with resources, fundraising inspiration, and cute dog photos. Did I mention the cute dog photos? Sign up at RiaWong.com. That's R-H-E-A-W-O-N-G.com. Rhea Wong. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Rhea Wong with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. Today we are talking with my friend Esther Choi about attracting first generation wealth creators. What does that mean? We will find out. So before we jump into it, Esther Choi is the president and chief story facilitator of the Leadership Story Lab. The reason I've asked her to come today is that she produced an interesting white paper called Transforming Partnerships with Major Donors. And what's very interesting about this is it's particularly relevant to the fundraisers out there to understand that not all major donors are created equal. So Esther, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. So Esther, before we jump into it, tell us a little bit about yourself and your company, please. Sure. So I founded Leadership Story Lab in 2010, and my main role is to help executives become more persuasive through the use of story. Back in 2010, storytelling in business wasn't a thing, but now it's everywhere thankfully. But it could mean also a whole host of things. It could be copywriting for a website, coming up with slogan for your product, PR, brand marketing, a whole host of things. Where I sit is the analog, interpersonal, and then the use of leadership to influence and persuade others with the most authentic possible part of who you are and what you're trying to achieve. Did not study leadership story telling in college or anything. I don't think any schools still offer that specific of applications, but I came to it because one of the roles that I used to have was an admissions officer at the Business School of University of Chicago. So having read essays and having interviewed people, and I also trained alum and students to be evaluators, and I realized that it's not so much of your qualifications, of your competence, but it's also how you tell your stories that resonate with decision maker. Mm. And so gradually I began to broaden my offering from individuals to companies, from profit to nonprofit. And I think that's why we're here today. So that really resonates with me because I, as you know, train fundraisers and so much of it is about personal narrative and storytelling. But let me switch tacks a little bit. I want to talk about this white paper that you produced called Transforming Partnerships with Major Donors, which uh, the face of it doesn't seem to fit so squarely in the work (laughs) that you're doing around storytelling. So tell us a little bit about how you came to write and, and research this topic. Yeah, so to make the long story short, the most important thing in a story is your audience. And what I found after having taught a major gift fundraising class at Kellogg for a number of years was that I don't think from the questions that I ask, 
from myself as a donor that major gift officers that I've encountered over eight years of teaching that class, uh, that executive education program really get their audience. So that's what spurred my interest and curiosity to study more. And that's what prompted the white paper. I see. So tell me a little bit about this white paper and what you've learned, because I think there's this tendency for people to paint all people of wealth with the same brush. And what's really interesting about your white paper is that you really disaggregated people who have inherited their wealth versus people who have made their wealth. What are the major findings here? I just say one thing about wealth or wealthy people uh, or call them high net worth individual or high net worth individual is probably one of the last standing minorities that is still okay in the eye of the public's to stereotype and the unconscious bias and this is not just beyond fundraising this is just a general public perceptions of the woo is largely negative think of other movies from pretty woman wolf of raw street to cruella very recently so many of the villains are ecstatically wealthy people. And this is not just in movie fictions, this is news that you hear. And so all of that reinforces certain uh, preconceived notions of who these people are. And in reality, some of them are actors, most of them are not. But it's probably one of the last few standing minority where it's okay to make sly comments, to make blanket statements about. And so in the studies, I try to really paint a more humanistic pictures of who they are and who they're not. First thing is, majority of the wealth in this country is not inherited, self-made. And when you look at different statistics, Mine, I landed at 68. I chose the most conservative numbers, but that estimation's as high as 80. So self-made wealthy people, that means they come from somewhere, not wealthy. And so number one is that majority of them made their own wealth, not inherited. And number two is that they came from mostly middle class. And in fact, number three, they have retained and proud of their middle-class roots. So everything that you know of being hardworking, being optimistic, taking risk, and being modest, being careful with your money, so on and so forth, these solid middle-class values actually make up the most of these first generation wealth. The studies that I quoted in the paper, it is a little old, but I think the takeaway especially is really interesting where they interview hundreds of marketers and they ask them what questions that they are best guess about wealthy individuals because these marketers market to luxury products to wealthy people. And then they also ask the wealthy individuals what they think. So example, like how do you feel about luxury items, like expensive watches and, you know, how much do you consume? A question is like, do you want people to know that you're wealthy? Marketers guess that 55% of the wealthy people want other people to know that they're wealthy. But when you ask wealthy folks, do you want other people to know? 11% of them said, yes, I do want other people to know. 
So 55% is the guests of marketers, 11% is the wealthy individuals. So there isn't a study that I know of that asks fundraisers or especially major gift fundraisers that I know of. Maybe there is. So if you do know that, please share. But I think this is a proxy for how outdated our perceptions or incorrect our perceptions are of wealthy donors. Yet these are donors, wealthy people are donors. And in order for your story to resonate with them, you have to know who they are. Yeah, let's unpack that because I think that's really, and also just to ground us for folks on the call, we're talking about individuals and families with assets ranging from 5 million to 150 million, with Mm -hmm. the mean being 50 to 80 million. That's how we're talking about wealth. One of the things that I think is really interesting about your work is this idea of middle class values versus wealthy values. And one of the things that really resonated with me was how these people of wealth wanted to impart these middle class values onto their children. Tell me a little bit about that and how we as fundraisers might be able to weave that into the stories that we tell. Yeah. So let me tell you a quick story. So my oldest, when she was in her sixth grade, one of her classmates did a project on these poor, exploited children from Madagascar and how they have to work every day without break and they have very little to eat. So their class got rally up and then they wanted to do a fundraiser to help out. I was very proud of her. It's her first fundraiser. And their goal was a thousand dollars. It's a very, very small Montessori school. And I thought, you know, there's for a bunch of sixth graders, a thousand dollars, most of them are set first time. It's a reasonable goal. I'm going to do like cookie, hot chocolate, that sort of thing. And then my daughter asked me, mommy, are you going to help? Yeah, of course. I'll buy whatever you guys sell and then I'll give you some money. And she said, how much? And I said, I don't know, $50. And she looked so upset and indignant. And I was like, what's wrong? Like, I really don't understand what's wrong. I just said I will support you or whatever you sell, I'll buy some and then I'll give you $50 on top of that. And she said, mommy, $50 is so little. And I was like, but you're only raising $1,000. How much did you think I should give? And she said, I don't know, maybe 500. And I was like, wait, you think I alone will come in and cover half of it for you? So it was dissonance and it was disappointing to her and it was disappointing to me too. But I think this really illustrated to me that of all the board work that I was involved with and all the fundraising that I've been a part of, I actually have never said a word to her. So how is she supposed to know what to expect? And I think I am like a lot of people who are afraid, even though I know I shouldn't, talk about philanthropy, talk about how to be responsible with our money, how to be thoughtful to other people who don't have as much. But I never talked about it because I don't know how to talk about it because I'm first generations. And so are the 20 people I've interviewed. And I also talk about, well, there's my kids. So of course it's my responsibilities. But I've also thought about how any of the organizations that I've been involved with, nobody ever offered me an opportunity to involve my kids. So I think your question is an excellent one. And sorry, it took me so long to get to it that 
a lot of us don't really know how to be wealthy, how to be responsibly wealthy, including how to coach and raise and teach our own children. And so here represents a really great untapped opportunities for nonprofit organizations to add values back that really isn't going to cost you much or anything at all, but it will just take some creativity as well as empathy. I'm so glad you mentioned this because I think there's this perception, probably misperception out there, and certainly in the nonprofit sector, which I think is so embedded in the scarcity mindset that like, oh, wealthy people know how to be wealthy. And especially for first generation wealth creators, it feels like a very new thing. They might uncomfortable with it. They may even be sort of guilty about it. Tell me how we as fundraisers may be able to have that conversation because I think you're right. It can be an awkward one, especially if someone hasn't like thought about how to talk about money. And yet there is an opportunity here. Yeah, it's a huge opportunity here. People will never offer that themselves. But if you find the right entry in the right angle with the right attitude, you'll be surprised how much they're willing to share. And so, of course, the tricky part of this is like, what is the right angle? What is the right entry? I love the saying, you ask for money, you get advice, and you ask for advice, you get money. So knowing how large of a percentage of uh, wealthy individuals are first generations, I think one easy way, obvious way is that we're trying to be more donor-centric. But I have to admit that we may not know exactly how. And so here I would love to have some advice from you of how we can be more donor-centric. That's easy, requires nothing, not even creativity on the part of fundraisers other than ask. And a stagging, a staggingly simple sometimes where if you ask, especially if you ask the right way, how much people will respond. Another way is that Hey, I heard about this report on Rhea Wong's podcast, and it's really interesting, covered by the New York Times and a lot of things I didn't know, but I just don't know how universally applicable the finding is from this research, especially when it it pertains to our board members, our donors. Do you mind if I ask you some questions to see that if this rang true to you? And so here's another opportunity to ask for advice, and I think... It is not just the outro, like, so let's just define a little terminology a little bit. Uh, we're talking about at the minimum 1% of the U.S. populations of the 300 million people. And then according to the Fed, the top 1% net worth is 11 million. The top 0.5% is 17.5 million. So, and then it goes on and on about that. But I would think that you can't just count on these top 1% because even top 10% are folks who can make a big difference for your organizations. I have several books to recommend. This one is a cool read. It's at least 15 years ago. It's called Limbo, Blue Collar Roots, White Collar Dreams. So there's also a staggeringly large amount of people who have migrated from blue collar to white collars and they have ability to give. They may not be that wealthy yet, but they have the ability to give. So the more you understand, the more you read about these people, instead of relying on these caricatures from news and the media, the better 
you will be able to tell your stories to your targeted audience. So I want to loop back on something that you said, which is that they are people who are kind of low-key. They don't flaunt their wealth. And so often, I think, as fundraisers, we're looking for these outward signs of wealth in order to indicate like who might be a major donor to us. Wealth screens, I think, are a tool, but I think are somewhat limited, especially here in New York City. Like real estate is hard to figure out too, because if you're very wealthy, you have a shell company or you're, you buy shares in a co-op as opposed to a condo, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, what are some of the ways that you might recommend that we start to research or pare down our prospect lists when it comes to wealth? Because it's not like these first-gen creators are like rolling around in Bentleys, <laughs> like winged out with diamonds. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, in fact, if anything else, it could be your neighbor and you just don't know. And there are lots and lots of ways to hide your wealth. And so you never know. So to your question is that how do you pare down the list from initial wealth screening to the ones that might have the most potentials? Is that the question? Yeah, that's the question. Like, how do you triage the list knowing that we can necessarily rely on these like outward signs of wealth? Yeah. So one thing I didn't even mention in the paper and in my bio is that my dear friend of mine, Bob Faley, just sold another company to a data enrichment company the one that we co-founded together, separate from the storytelling leadership story lab. It's a donor data enrichment company. So we've developed algorithm on how do you have better data to start with? Because you can rely on your donors, their referrals and all of that, but you can't rely on that alone. So given the availability of public data, I think you have to start with the right cleaned and rich data that isn't just doesn't give you their purported wealth their real estate holdings but also social and professionals as well as political so depending on the states i don't have all 50 states memorized here in illinois that's where i am whether we like it or not voting records it's public so when you have social you have professional you have political on top of wealth data, all of those together is what you have to start with to give you a more balanced and better informed view of who they are. That's what I know because I once upon a time co-owned a data enrichment company that has a lot to do with fundraising. (laughs) Yeah, that's such a good point. Data can only take you so far though. So to your point, it really is about the conversation and about the relationship because just because someone has capacity doesn't mean that they're going to give that wealth to you as an organization, particularly if you haven't spent the time to develop a relationship. I'm gonna switch tax a little bit here to talk about how are the ways as fundraisers that we need to engage these first generation wealth creators differently than our traditional donors. And I'm thinking specifically around things like the galas or the traditional tools of fundraising. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. How should we think about the fundraising approach or events given now that we know that there's this 
hidden large subset of people. There's one thing I want to point out is that majority of the fundraising approach, including gala, including the initial screening, and then we sit down uh, you know, with as many people as you can get a hold of and give you time, and then try to cultivate them along. That practice, that approach came from a century and a half ago to where most of what our conceptions or perceptions of the wealthy gentries and the old money and that through introductions and all of that, it came from that. Now, it's very traditional, nothing wrong with it. The only issue is that if that is not a match of folks who will find your cause appealing. So in my study, I interviewed 20 first-generation wealth creators extensively, but that's only 20. Although most of them, they don't care for the gala, the, the dressing up, and the meet and greet, and a good 20% of them didn't even enjoy their board experience. And so I think here the rub is that, again, you have to know who your audience is and what you're able to attract and then spend the time and the energy and the resources on fundraising events that work for them. So it's not a dig at gala at all, not a dig at traditionals or what. It's just more of that we can't afford to do, repeat the same old thing over and over again just because that's the thing that we've always done. So... Let's unpack that a little bit because I do think it feels right that a lot of these first-gen wealth creators don't like the bells and whistles of a traditional gala. But I do think that there is something still to be said about that personal relationship and sitting down and meeting. It seems to me, and I'd love to get your thoughts on it, that first-gen wealth creators tend to make decisions much faster. Like they want to know what you want in the first or second meeting versus maybe donors, I don't want to say older to be ageist here, but maybe older donors that like want a longer cultivation process. Is that what you found or is it highly dependent on each individual? So regardless of age, people in that category appreciate transparency. So I think maybe there's a differences in the speed or the time it requires for them to make decisions, but across the board, they appreciate what is this meeting for? What is it that you would like to accomplish? If it's money you're asking, even though I don't expect a check today or anytime soon, we're here to talk about potential areas that you can get your support. Say that upfront. And that's the one thing that I found across the board people appreciate. Just be, be transparent what the purpose of this is. Okay, last question. One thing that you mentioned in the report is that because these are folks who have created their own wealth, they tend to be very entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm wondering, does that become problematic when, when and if they see their role as a donor becoming involved in the operations of the nonprofit? Like if I have experience of like fixing organizations, does that create uh, a very fuzzy line between donor and full-time staff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because they have, by the way, three quarters of made their money by starting business, selling the business. And you can still make good amount of money in the corporate areas, but by far, it's not the way to become ultra wealthy. And so it's in their DNA and they can't turn it off. 
And that applies to the personal life too, by the way. And so, so here's the challenge where they have less personal attachment to why things are done the way they're done or any of us that they're more in tune with what is more efficient. However, I'd also like to frame it as from a positive angle. And that is if you go to them with a problem statement and a distinct solutions that you are uniquely suited to solve, that's music to their ear. And that's why it's actually a positive thing to have potential donors who are very, very entrepreneurial in mind. Because what is entrepreneurship but being able to spot opportunities and being able to be the first to serve the market. And for them, it's the private sector that we created the wealth, but they fully understand that that can apply to the public uh, sector as well and nonprofit sector as well. So think of this as an advisor. Think of yourself and your work as another way that you can provide them with questions that they face with, what do I do with all this money? I mean, most of us don't get to circle with that question. So it's really hard to relate to that. What do I do with all that money? Right? I, I, <laughs> I hope to have the opportunity one day. Yeah. So what do I do with that? All that money? I see all these needs around me, but I don't know which, who and which approach is best to solve them. And in comes somebody who have the experience, the deep knowledge, the connections and the expertise and a unique strategy to solve the problem. And the only thing that I have to do is to raise my hand and step up. That is just music to the entrepreneurial years. Yeah, I really wanna underline something here that I talk about all the time, which is that nonprofit organizations have to realize that they are coming with resources in the way that their donors are coming with resources. To your point, there's the knowledge of the community, there's the know-how, there's the actual programs, which as a donor, you're not gonna do on your own. There's a mutual combining of resources here to achieve something. You have something so valuable to give, to offer. You're not someone who simply asking for money. That's not your primary job. Your primary job is to help donors solve the problems that they care to solve. I love that. I say that all the time. As a fundraiser, you are the Yoda. You are the helper to help your (laughs) Luke Skywalker achieve their mission. All right, I lied. I have a last question before I get to the audience. Tell me a little bit about any insights that you may have with respect to a lot of the conversations happening now that are sort of focused on racial equity, racial justice, reparations, distributive taxes. I guess I'm wondering, I was having dinner last night with someone who had interviewed high net worth individuals and they were saying that a lot of their children are focused on, as soon as I get this inherited money, I'm gonna give it away to the community. And then there are the self-made people who are like, I made this money. Can I just enjoy it? I haven't had it for generations and generations. So can you say a little bit about how people might be thinking differently about the reparative nature of like wealth distribution? Yeah. So I want to quote my friend, Scott Mordell, who is the longest serving CEO of YPO Global. So young president organizations, they're basically one giant 33,000 global network of ultra type A successful 
wealthy individuals. And he thinks that the wind is on your back. And I'm talking about fundraisers, especially major gift donors, because to your questions, Raya, the wind is blowing that direction that people across ages and generations are far, 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 far more aware of the fact that putting food on tables is important. That's very basic, basic needs, but the reparative social justice nature of nonprofit work, philanthropy, is going to be a big piece. You look at the amount of money that people like Mackenzie Scott gave and how she gave and how she's decided. She didn't start out that being public at all, but she, later she decided to be public about multi-year, no string to attach, and general fund operational, however you think is best, because I trust you to be the best because you're on the ground, you're best equipped to know how to best use the money. That is, I think, what my friend Scott is referring to as the wind is on your back. Yeah, I love that. I think the other piece too is when you really engage your donors as partners in the work as opposed to thinking of them as like this extractive like oh i'm gonna somehow manipulate my way into a gift like that's when you really get like true generosity and true sort of unlocking of resources okay i'm gonna call on connie connie what's your question hi thank you so my question is around i agree with your maxim of like if you want money ask for advice if you want advice ask for money. I think what's challenging though is the complexity depending on your organization. People don't only just want one time sometimes they want a seat at the table but like the seat mm -hmm. at the table within your organization is complicated. It's not easy to like say okay you can sit on the board or you can sit on this advisory council. So I was just curious, what is your advice on like engaging these wealth creators, this demographic of people who do want to offer advice and can offer the, they have a role to play, but you can't formally provide them that role within your organization. What's the best way to stay engaged with them? I think there's something to be said about be having a formal role, a formal title with an organization. I am not at all saying that these people don't have their own agenda. In the situations, this is how I understand your questions, Connie, is that you can offer them a formal seat, formal role. How can you still make use of their advice? So this is something I did with my major gift program at Kellogg. Usually I always require prep work whether it's a multi-day executive program or it's just a one-time workshop, I always require prep work. And then almost universally people grumble because they're not used to it, except for this class. People love my prep work because I effectively gave them an excuse to talk to their longest supporting donors. So one of the prep work I asked them is take these questions, go ask your longest supporting donors and some of them are new to their organization, so of course it's helpful. But some of them have been with their organizations for many years. They never had the opportunity to sit down and ask them these questions. And so I basically provide them with a legitimate excuse. Oh, I'm in this program and then the professor require these. Would you please help me? 
but you don't need to spend the money. Although I encourage you to, professional development is always good, but you don't need to have a formal excuse. And here's how I think about storytelling: it's not just you telling story, but it's you asking other people to tell their stories. So you think of this as an opportunity for you to ask them to tell their stories through the guise of giving you some advice. Hey, we're trying to better understand this. I'll tell you, my friend Lisa Greer, who wrote Philanthropy Revolutions, one of the three books I would like to recommend to everyone. Someone she was coaching decided to do a survey and ask everyone, "How would you like to hear from us? And how often would you like to hear from us?" And this is not even one-on-one, right? This is an informal survey. What's the engagement rate typically in a survey? Like five, ten, twenty percent. He got seventy-two percent engagement rate, and so much goodwill generated from this. Because oh my gosh, I'm so glad you ask. How I want to hear from you, and how often I want to hear from you. And then so they got a roadmap of oh well that saves us money, or oh that saves us time. Oh, this is what you value. I wish I knew. And so this is not even one on one, but this is asking for advice. This is another form of asking for advice of how can we establish a better, a more productive, and an easier relationship so that you can be in a better positions to help us when the time is right. So I don't know if that answered that questions, but I think the sky is the limit as to asking for advice. Without having a formal role to offer. Yeah, and Esther, I just want to lift up something that you said because I read your book as well, which is for-profit companies spend an inordinate amount of money trying to understand their customer, trying to do market research. We don't, in the nonprofit sector, do a fraction of that, and so so often we're just operating in the dark because we haven't asked people. What do they love about us? Why do they donate to us? How often do they want to hear from us? Is it text? Is it email? All of these basic things that we just guess at that may or may not resonate with the needs and desires of our donors. And so I think the point here is like, don't be afraid to talk to your donors. They already love you. Yeah, I can't emphasize that enough. It's such an excellent point, Raya.、Right? Don't be scared, guys. All right, <laughs> I think we have time for one last question from Aaron. Aaron, do you want to mute yourself and ask? Sure. So I just joined a nonprofit. I'm trying to formulate my thoughts quickly, but I just joined a nonprofit that actually began in December, and so we've spun off, became our own 501c3. So、mm. I totally hear you on wanting to connect with new prospects and donors, but in the world of COVID, I know that we're moving away from galas, but we're also moving away from any in person. It's really difficult to try to connect with someone that you don't know, that you don't have a relationship with, and try to get them on Zoom. In the past, you might go to an event and Network during a cocktail hour, or go to a seminar on a on a topic that might align with your nonprofit and align with interests of potential donors. But I'm just wondering, in this day and age, I'm based in Boston, Massachusetts, and there's obviously a concern for variants related to COVID. But I'm wondering if you have any suggestions on how to engage with folks, not only as we move away from galas, but also as we move away, really, from any in-person events, at least for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I want to point you to、uh, the work of、uh, Nicholas Apley from University of Chicago.、I'm、not sure I know how to summarize in a business school, but he studied 
how other people understand, perceive other people. And in the hike of the first, the last year's lockdown, he did this really wonderful webinar about how people assume that reaching out to folks they don't know very well, and that includes pre-COVID world, talking to a stranger on a plane or on a train, or reaching out to a colleague you haven't spoken to in years, or a friend, same thing. People assume that oh, it's awkward to do so. They don't, like, I don't want to bother people. When in fact, those on the receiving side appreciate and are very grateful for these type of outreach. And so I understand that there's nothing that can replace in person. So it's unfortunate that given the environment that we're in, our hands are tied. But again, I want to stress that there are a lot of untapped opportunities where reaching out to someone that is not necessarily about how your organization is doing, but just on a person to personal level. And this is the time consuming part. And I'm not a fundraiser and I'm not here to tell you how to do your job better at all. Maybe I should have said that from the beginning, but donors are humans too. And so they appreciate being reached out to on a personal to person level. And so in the time that you have to get ready for a networking event and being at the networking event, following up at the networking event, you could use that time and actually do a lot of great individual outreach. Yeah, I'd like to underscore Esther's point. So two things that I generally like to say is like, it's only weird if you make it weird. So don't make it weird. So if you go in expecting it's going to be awkward, it's probably going to be awkward. And then number two, on the flip side, Aaron, to your point, in some ways, it's actually easier to get people on Zoom because it's less time consuming than like physically going somewhere. So I would say also consider the flip side of in this virtual world, you may actually be able to get more meetings on the books. Last few minutes together, Esther, could you share with us some of the books that you would recommend that folks look at, including your own, of course? So thank you. My book, Let the Story Do the Work, look at storytelling as a very methodical process. So if you're gifted with words and language, if you're creative, good for you, but you don't need that. If you understand the fundamental elements of storytelling and work on it bit by bit, part by part, regardless of your natural aptitude or affinity, you can become a great storyteller. That's the book. That's the plug for my book. But for my friends in the nonprofit fundraising world, and especially if you approach major gift donors, I have a holy trinity of books for you that I did not write. This one is the one that I wish I knew from the outstar, Call Strangers in Paradise by James Grubman. And the brilliant part about this book is that it looked at first-generation wealth creators as immigrant, socioeconomic immigrant. So the whole premise of it is using cross-cultural psychology as the bedrock of how do you understand the life, the joy, and the struggle and there's not a section in particular on philanthropy, but it is the best book that I know out there, most comprehensive out there to really understand from a structural level, from a cross-cultural perspective level of what these people are like, really human 
level. Second in the Trinity is called We Need to Talk, a memoir about wealth by Jen Risha. Very briefly, she and her husband were early cohort in the Microsoft and Amazon era. And so in their 30s, they're already multimillionaires. And so Jen is someone who had struggled with wealth. And so what it differs from Stranger in Paradise is this is a personal story. This is a personal journey. Lisa Greer, Philanthropy Revolutions, I might have mentioned earlier, she is also first gen wealth creators. She really, really cares about the success of nonprofits. It might feel like when you decide to read her book that she's coming to you with an ax, but she does it all in the spirit of here are some things that the rug is leaving you beneath your feet as we speak. And it's important that we all start paying attention. And the survey examples of the donors came from her. So tons of advice, tons of great tips about how to engage donors. Perfect. So those are my three trinity. And could you spell the Nicholas Apley for folks who want to? Sure, Apley. I can look it up. E-P-L-E-Y? E-P-L-E-Y from University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Awesome. Esther, thank you for being here. We've learned so much. Where can folks find you on the interwebs if they want to know more about you and about your work? Sure. LeadershipStoryLab.com. All in one word, Leadership Story Lab. We do a monthly newsletter called Better Every Story that gives you tons of tips and examples of good storytelling. Um, I'm also a Forbes contributor. So you can find my writing in the leadership strategies section channel. I also am a podcast host, but not nearly as prolific as Raya. We do it by season, so more of a Netflix model and focuses on business-only families, multi-generational. So it's called Family in Business, and you can find it in any podcast listening platform. And that's another hidden population is these multi-generational family businesses. They are easily 70% of our GDPs, but they're also very, very little understood by the general public. I love that. Thank you so much. Esther, it's been a pleasure. We've learned so much. I have new books for my reading list. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. Make sure that you download the white paper, everyone. It's good stuff and happy fundraising. Thank you. Nice to see everybody.